Okay, we're in Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews 9. Anywhere in 9, because I'm going to go all over the place today, so. Because God has a sense of humor, he's made me the shepherd over this flock. <laughs> and uh, he does have a sense of humor. But we, every once in a while, we like to tighten the ship a little bit and make sure that, as Colonel Theme used to say, there's no unnecessary movement. Remember that? One thing I have to do is protect the positive volition of people who have come here for the express purpose of coming to know God, our Redeemer, our Savior, our King, and our maker. And so for one hour a week at least, people come and consider this a life and death issue. It's a matter of spiritual life or not. And so we receive the word of God, which is the life-giving word of Jesus Christ. And so because we're sprawled out, sometimes there can be a little bit of a, an inattentiveness. So I'm asking all people in all rooms to be as attentive as they can to the word of God. And that means that just for this brief period, there shouldn't be a need to step out for any reason unless it's an urgent reason and that those are understandable. And... If you have to smoke or vape sometimes in the next hour, then you've got a problem. So try to, try to sit still for the whole thing. It, I have great urges for donuts sometimes, but I can't break the message off and go out to the car and get a donut. So, and in fact, I don't eat until 1 o'clock, and by that time, I eat six donuts. <laughs> no, not really. But uh, this, this is an important thing. I, it, I know it sounds weird, but I can detect when there's distraction anywhere in this building, where, no matter where it is. It's a disturbance in the force, and I can, I can pick it up. So I'm very sensitive about this because I know that the communication of the Word of God is a life-giving time for us, and it's really the most important thing that believers do as a New Covenant community in our time. So attentiveness is important. I understand also, lately, and in our nation as a whole, there is a health crisis, and it's partly because of what occurs so-called in nature. It's also partly because of what is caused in science and in deliberate manufacture. And so I appreciate everyone taking the great care in this time. We urge everyone especially as I noticed some of you, not me, but some of you are actually aging in our congregation, so we want to be extra careful. And as we've said, every time this time of year comes along, to be very attentive. I've explained to you the reasons why I have to use extreme caution, and um, I appreciate your attentiveness to that. And thank you for those who are careful who don't come here with symptoms of anything just because of love for one another. I appreciate that. There's always a time to get the tape the, or the MP3 or the DVD or the half speed or quarter speed or double speed. It's all available. So we're grateful for all of your attendance upon that. Thank you also, Pastor Brown, Pastor Stewart, and Pastor Messick for speaking and the very important occasions of funeral services this past week. I know the gospel went forth with power, 
and with the ability to comfort and sustain and build up and uphold those who are grieving. Now, in Bernard Lonergan's book called The Redemption, and redemption is a key word in Hebrews, let's take that hard break now, Bible doctrine, right into the word. The word redemption is found in Hebrews 9, 12. It is something that Jesus Christ came to the earth to obtain, and he did obtain eternal redemption, and we're making the argument that he made that, that he obtained eternal redemption, which is another word for an aspect of our salvation, that he won that redemption at great price, at great cost, that he won it forever, and that he won it for all. His sacrifice on the cross is what I call once and for all and for all, because it's once and for all time, and it's once and for all people, in fact, once and for all, as Brian said, all creation. He came to liberate creation from its slavery to corruption. Now we dealt with a thesis, it's a loaded thesis that we looked at in the redemption. I like to revisit things after a year or two or after several months and see how much clearer we understand it now than we did when we first approached it. Bernard Lonergan's book called The Redemption there's a loaded thesis. Now, a thesis is a statement, an affirmation. And if a theologian is worth his salt, when he makes that affirmation, he will have several connections in the scriptures. There are 63,799 cross-references in the Bible. And that's been discovered even scientifically lately. The impossibility of that happening except by supernatural, even divine means is noted. And that that would happen by a single author is remarkable, but that it happens in a document called the Bible, which was written over the course of 1,500 years by 40 authors, makes it infinitely more remarkable. And I hope that by the time I'm done teaching, I will have dealt with all 63,799 of those correlations, and we'll deal with a few of them today. The loaded thesis is about eternal redemption. In this, Lonergan actually answers the question, what is redemption? Quidsit. What is it? The Latin would say, quidsit. What is it? And he answers by saying this, and this is his thesis. Redemption denotes not only an end, but also a mediation, namely, the payment of the price. Please note that phrase first. It's fundamentally the most important. Christ the mediator's passion, his vicarious passion, that's a fancy word we're going to iron out in a moment, and death on account of sins and for sinners. Our high priest's sacrifice offered in his blood, his meritorious obedience, the power of the risen Lord, and the intercession of the eternal priest. Six things are mentioned there, six items. Let's hit them one at a time and fan them out a little bit. First, the payment of the price. Redemption has to do with the payment of a price. The idea inherent in the word redemption is that of a ransom or a price paid to restore mankind and to restore 
even the entirety of created reality. That word can be problematic. There has been debates, and I've studied these over the course of church history. They've had debates because the scripture says we've been bought with a price. They say, well, who paid the price and to whom? And all kinds of weird speculations came out about that. And even to the point where some even posited that Jesus paid Satan to redeem people, which of course is not only absurd, but well. So I have to say, and again, that I'm in agreement with Karl Barth, another one of my mentors, who reasoned thus. He said, can anyone else pay but Yahweh? That's the God of Israel. Can he pay anything else but his own person? Can he pay anyone else but himself? The last, in the last resort, no other answer can be given to those three questions. So despite the difficulties that some have with the figure of speech, which is a financial metaphor that a price was paid for us to secure our redemption, the New Testament writers consider it to be an apt one. Other metaphors are more able to be fanned out into doctrines. The most important, I think, in all the scriptures is the judicial metaphor in which Jesus Christ, the judge, and who is God and man in one person, becomes the judged for us. And once more, at home in Hebrews, there's the cultic, not cultish, but cultic. That means the Levitical sacrificial metaphor in which Jesus is disclosed to be both the priest that offers the sacrifice and the sacrifice that was offered, the offered and the offering, the priest and the victim. This again is more at home in Hebrews and accords with all the notions of Lonergan's 15th thesis. For that, the payment of the price, he then resumes the thesis. There is a price that has been paid to secure our redemption, our slavery to sin, our slavery to death, our fear of death, and it's the price of Christ's self-sacrifice. And that's where we find ourselves in Hebrews 9.26. Once at the termini of the ages, at the peak of the ages, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is a sacrifice of perfect love. It is the putting away not just of a few sins for a few people, but of sin itself for all people. Jesus Christ is called Jesus Christ the Righteous One in 1 John 2.1, 1 Peter 3.18, Romans 1.17, Acts 22.14, and a whole bunch of other places, including Isaiah 53.11. He, the Righteous One, on behalf of us all, became the propitiation or the satisfaction required for the sins not only of us, not only of the so-called church, not only of Israel, but of the whole world in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. And that's the price that was paid. Christ the mediator's passion is called a vicarious passion and death on account of sins and for sinners. That's the second thing. After the payment of the price in this thesis 15 of the redemption, Christ the mediator's passion or vicarious passion and death on account of sins and for sinners. This aspect of redemption is powerfully expressed in Hebrews 2.9, in which it says that Jesus, by the grace of God, or another alternate 
translation which I adopt and which I believe. Jesus, though he was God, is far from God when he experienced or tasted or suffered death for everyone, meaning for all humanity, for everyone, because he suffered the death which is the wages of sin for everyone and sacrificed himself to be the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. There is a death called the death of the cross that Jesus died. It is not like any other death. It is not by, like any other crucifixion of a man or a woman, and there were hundreds of thousands of those in history. It is called the death of the cross because only one person, the God-man, died or experienced that death. It's the death that Paul described as the wages of sin, the wages of sin, and that is death, a death that's unspeakable, a death that none of us have to die, thank God. Though we die physically, we go into the presence of the Lord immediately, and we're going to be dealing with that much more on, in the near future. And so on many occasions, we've indicated Jesus' experience of death for everyone, not for some people, but for all people. Not for some people's sins, but for all people's sins. Not for Israel's sins for another year, like on the Day of Atonement, but for the sins of the whole world for all time, past, present, and future, into the eternal future. And so, on many occasions, we've indicated Jesus' experience of this death for everyone to be his unique experience as the sinless Son of God, enduring the wages of sin for everyone without exception. Though the Hebrews author doesn't specialize on the judicial view of Jesus' death on a cross, on the cross it is certainly found here. The judicial view is not like the financial view. The financial view, a price was paid, a ransom price to secure our redemption from slavery to sin and the fear of death and from eternal death, really. And the judicial, I think, is by far the most well-developed in the scripture and the most well-documented in the scripture and the most important. That is that God, the judge of all, and he is the judge of all, judged by becoming the judged himself, stepped in and received the judgment in the person of his son. Jesus Christ, the son of God, God himself, as well as man through incarnation, was one to whom the Father entrusted all judgment. He's that son of man that was predicted and envisioned by Daniel in chapter 7 of Daniel. He saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds to the ancient of days. Jesus referred to himself on 52 occasions, speaking of cross-references in the Bible, as that son of man. And he said, the Father entrusted all judgment to me because I'm the son of man. The one to whom God entrusted all judgment received the judgment that was due for all human beings for sins on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? There is an indescribable thing about his death that we can't even conceive. Bearing repetition, then, there are two passages that I quoted on Wednesday from Increment 320. This is our 321st hour in Hebrews, and we're beginning to scratch the surface a little bit. A guy named Helmut Goldwitzer, who studied Bart, wrote these two things, and I hope you'll pay 
much closer attention than ever before. He says we are not dealing merely with any suffering. That is, when we deal with Jesus Christ suffering on the cross. We are not dealing merely with any suffering, but with the suffering of God and this man, God and this man, Jesus, in the face of the destruction which threatens all creation and every individual, thus compromising God as creator. We are dealing with the promising God as the creator. We are dealing with, quote, the painful confrontation of God and this man, not merely with any evil, not merely with death, but with eternal death, with the power of that which is not. Moreover, as I said in that increment, we're dealing with what we call in theology, homardiology and soteriology. Homardiology is the study of sin. Soteriology is the study of salvation. But especially we're dealing with Christology, which is the word of Christ. Only by seeing homardiology, sin, and soteriology, salvation, in the light of Christology, in the light of Jesus Christ, can we make sense of what I call and what many call universal salvation? For universal salvation, by definition, is none other than the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. There's no controversy about it. There's a great debate about whether there is universal salvation or not, and people are highly objectionable about it. They get very passionate about it. Sometimes they get threatening about it. But the reason that I believe in universal salvation or the salvation of all the human race for all time is not because of anything to do with the human race at any time, but everything to do with Jesus Christ, the man, the only mediator between God and man. That universal salvation, by definition, is none other than the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. It is the universal impact of the death that he experienced on the cross, which was redemptive and vicarious, which Jesus is said to have endured in Hebrews 12.2, in order to put away sin itself by the sacrifice of himself, the sacrifice of perfect love. Continuing the above thought, Mr. Gullwitzer wrote this, and I want to reiterate it because it bears repetition. Therefore, we are not dealing with any sin or with many sins which might wound God again and again, and especially at this point, and the consequences of which this man had to suffer in part and freely willed to do so. We are dealing with sin itself and as such. The preoccupation, the orientation, the determination of man as he has left his place as a creature and broken his covenant with God, that's mankind in general, the corruption which God has made his own, for which he willed to take responsibility in this one man, that's Jesus. Here in the passion in which as judge he lets himself be judged, God has fulfilled this responsibility. In the place of all men, that's all human beings, he has himself wrestled with that which separates them from him. He has himself borne the consequences of this separation to bear it away. And he's done this. He has done this. God is love. And God is love in this act of bearing away sin by becoming the judge. 
We have all these visions of a, of a, a judge that's vengeful, that has revenge, and that is a just judge who we are fearful to stand before him. But if we understood that this judge is the one who threw away his robe and stepped in the place of the criminal and took the penalty, we would be all the more excited about facing the judgment of God rather than terrified at it. It may be helpful to define the theological term vicarious that theologians use, and that's really my job, is to take what's kind of highfalutin and sounding of very academic terms and make them palatable for you, make them understandable for you. This is something that the Lord has made very clear to me that I'm to do in my waning years. And that is vicarious, according to the second meaning of the word by the dictionary definition, means endured or done by one person substituting for another. And that's what Jesus did. You cannot compare any other suffering with Jesus' suffering. People say, and they write about it. Well, I know someone who was beaten more severely than Jesus was, suffered more physically than Jesus did, was mangled or mutilated more than Jesus was, tortured and abused more than Jesus was. But the whole point of that is, no, you don't, because you don't know that what he endured was not any kind of suffering, but suffering for the sins of all mankind for all time, suffering the wages or the wages that a thing called sin would pay, suffering the end result of a defection from God on the part of man, where that would have taken man. And he suffered it all for all of us. It is the suffering not of any man, but of God, who is this man, Jesus. There is a suffering there that's incalculable, immeasurable, and incomparable with any other suffering of any other person. And so that's extremely important. And so, the third thing that Lonergan mentions in his thesis is, quote, our high priest's sacrifice offered in his blood. This is obviously germane to Hebrews, the only piece of New Testament writing where Jesus is specifically called our eternal high priest. And the only document of the 27 monographs of the New Testament that overtly refers to Jesus as the eternal priest who was typically forecasted by Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, as we saw in great detail in Psalm 110.4. So to Hebrews also pertains this aspect of the thesis of Lonergan, and that is what he calls his meritorious obedience. And that's a vital subject about which we are to approach again in Hebrews 10. We're going to see when he came into this world by his incarnation, God the Son took on humanity and he said, I came to do your will, O God. God's will was the salvation of all mankind. Jesus fulfilled that will. And so the salvation of all mankind has been accomplished. When Jesus cried to Telestai, that's not what he said. That's the Greek rendition of what he said in the Aramaic. In the Aramaic, he said, Mashalem. And Mashalem in the Aramaic, which came to be Tetelestai, the name of our church, for Greek readers. Mashalem means peace has been made. Peace has been made. 
And this is something that we have to adjust our sight to. When you come into a room that's very, very brilliantly lit, you have to adjust your eyes to what you see. We came into a room recently, I came into a room recently where I saw, that is, I'm speaking metaphorically, that God reconciled the world to himself in Christ and that it is done, that peace has been made between God and the whole human race. It's taken me quite a few years to adjust my eyes to this brilliant new room I've entered because it is an insight. It is a, a glaring insight sort of like what the sons of Zebedee, the Zebedee brothers and Peter saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, which Pastor Stewart's doing such a remarkable job teaching on. They saw Jesus suddenly, his whole face transfigured and transformed, and it says his clothing turned dazzling white, not just white, but dazzling like the flashing of lightning, that a flash of lightning that didn't stop flashing. And so they had to get used to that vision. They saw with them it's something that the Greek says, duo andres were standing with him, two men, two men. And their names were Moses and Elijah. Their, their identities made super clear. And you could know that it was them. They didn't have to say, hi, I'm Moses, hi, I'm Elijah. Their identity was absolutely clear in the light of the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration where many things occurred. Now, it's interesting because we want to approach this subject. Lately, I was, I must have been bored and I must have been totally exhausted because I tuned into a movie called Men in Black, which, of course, is, was mildly entertaining. And, of course, Hollywood has this penchant of making everything as ugly and monstrous as they can. So these men in black, and they were really men and women, dressed in black, they had, they had an access to a supernatural realm of monstrosities that were threatening planet Earth, and they were able to travel, time travel. Well, as I've mentioned in recent messages, I'm more interested in what I read in the Bible. There were two men in white that appeared at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says two men. It doesn't say two angels. It said duo andres, from the Greek word aner, which means man, or fully grown adult male, as opposed to a boy, as opposed to a woman. Two men in white, dazzling white clothing. They appeared at the tomb of Jer Joseph of Arimathea, where Jesus had been laid out in death. And these two men in white said, why are you looking for Jesus here? He's not even here. He's risen from the dead. They announced his resurrection. There were also two men. It does not say two angels. This is intriguing. I'm going to let it hang in the air for a few weeks. But it's also two men, as Luke put it, in Acts 1, 10, and 11. Two men, duo andres, same term used when it described two men, Moses and Elijah. They're not dead, they're alive. They are alive because God is a God of the living and he only sees all as living, as Jesus said in Luke 20, verses 37 and 38. Two men in white came to the disciples when Jesus was taken out of their sight, up, and out of their sight in a cloud. And he was, as he was going, they were staring up into the sky, and suddenly there appeared two men in white. 
duo, Andres in white, two men in spectacular, dazzling white clothing. And they said, what are you guys doing gawking up into the sky? This same Jesus, whom you've seen go away from you now, will come again. And when he does come again, we know that he's coming to restore all things, not to rapture a few people off the planet, a few billion people off the planet, like the commercial. There's not going to be people standing in line to go on an airplane ride and have some disappear in another panic. Where'd they go? Where'd they go? Your UPS or your prime Amazon delivery person isn't going to drop his phone and disappear on the way back to the truck. And all these things, are not, he's come not to rapture a few off this planet and leave the rest behind to endure a tribulation that happened 2,000 years ago. He is coming to restore all things and to make effective, which he made effective through his resurrection, he will make effective the restoration of all things and bring about the times of refreshing. Is that coming imminent? Can it be any minute? Can it be today? Yes, it is imminent. It is inevitable. It is radical. It's going to be a radical transformation. Ought we be ready for it instead of lackadaisical? Ought we to be staring into the perfect law of liberty instead of staring at YouTube and TikTok videos, as entertaining as they are? Are we to be gazing into the perfect law of liberty, which is the scripture, and to be ready for that event? Yes, indeed. We are to be attentive. We are to be intelligent with regard to the plan and the will of God. We are to be reasonable and present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And we are to be responsible, and we are to be, most of all, in love. And so, backing up slightly, and we always have to back up, because whenever there is a reference to his second coming, as it's called, which I really call, as I've said before, his third coming again, which we'll explain again. When, we talk, when people talk about this, and when the Bible talks about this, it always reverts back to the one who's coming is the one who has come and who was crucified. We are determined to know no one and nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When we see the angels talking to the women who came to the tomb, they were terrified and they're called angels in another place or it's suggested that they're angels, but I call them two men in white. What they said to these women was he's not here, he's risen. And then they said, back to the crucifixion. Remember what he told you when he was still in Galilee? That the Son of Man must suffer, and he must be crucified and raised again the third day. It's the crucified Christ that's resurrected. That's what makes the resurrection so glorious. It is the resurrection of a crucified man, the man Christ Jesus. And so the fourth that pertains to Hebrews, his meritorious obedience. And what's that mean? It means it comes from the word merit. Jesus' obedience is called meritorious because it merited salvation, not just for himself by resurrection, but for all humankind. He became obedient to the Father's will for us all. Christ's meritorious obedience is that radical and representative obedience. He was representing us all in that act of obedience. 
in dying. That's why Paul said, I was crucified with Christ. And I was raised together with him. And you can say the same thing. Buried together with him. Raised together with him. Seated with him in heavenly places. In him. Christ's meritorious obedience is Christ's radical and representative obedience. Meaning that his obedience to the Father's saving will merited the justification and sanctification of all of humanity. All of creation. How many churches are preaching this today? One out of a thousand, maybe, on the outside. The indispensable aspect of redemption that we call Christ's obedience is related to God's election of Jesus Christ. We cannot think of God's election of mankind before we think of God's election first of himself. God elected first himself. God elected himself and determined himself to be for his creation, never against it, always for it, to be never without his creation, always with it. What's Christmas about? Emmanuel, God with us. God willed himself to be Emmanuel, God with creation. He decided in eternity before time that he would not be God without you that he would not be God against you or against anything in creation or any aspect of creation or any aspect of humanity or any human being, that he would be God for us, that he would be God with us, that he would be God never against us but always for us. And he was so much for us that he did not spare his only son but freely handed him over on behalf of us all, as Romans 8.32 says. And Jesus handed himself over for us because he loved us. And so Christ's meritorious obedience means that after God elected himself, he elected his son, Jesus Christ. He elected Jesus Christ to be the only one who would be rejected because of sin. And he elected Jesus Christ to be rejected on behalf of all of us instead of all of us. And therefore, he elected Jesus Christ not only to represent himself to mankind, but to represent mankind to himself. When the father sees and looks upon his son, he sees all of humanity in his son and loves all of humanity as he loves his son, not less as he loves his son. He is a representative of God to man, and he's the perfect representative of God to humanity because he's truly God, as well as man through incarnation. He represents all of mankind to the Father, to God, because he is truly human being, truly man. And that's what the scripture teaches very clearly. This indispensable aspect of redemption is related to God's election of Jesus Christ, for God elected Jesus Christ not only as God for us, but as us for God. In seeing you today, God the Father sees you for himself. He sees you obedient to himself because he sees you in his son, the obedient one. His obedience, Jesus did, extended beyond the degree and bounds of any human obedience to God. For it extended to what Paul called the death 
of the cross, not any death by crucifixion, but the death by the cross that was appointed for the God-man to receive the wages of sin for everyone and be judged in place of everyone. And then to say, Mashalem, peace has been made. The world is reconciled to God. And the Bible says that by the blood of his cross, by the peace that was made by the blood of his cross, God will reconcile everything in the heavens and on earth in him. That's universal redemption. That's universal restoration. That's universal reconciliation. And so his obedience extended beyond the degree and bounds of any human obedience to God because it was the obedience of the God-man, the man Jesus, who was and is and always was and will be truly and really God in every way. The Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD got it right when they described Jesus Christ as very deus et very homo, meaning truly God and truly man. Jesus Christ's obedience was radical in that it was to the extent of suffering the death of the cross in which as judge he lets himself be judged as one with God and as one with man and as judge and as the son of man to whom God entrusted all judgment he endured the judgment suffered the wages of sin by becoming sin itself, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, in order to put away sin per se, in Hebrews 9.26. So may we ever be more intelligent. Why are we here? We are here to become ever more intelligent with regard to the extent of Jesus Christ's obedience. I know it and appreciate it more now than I did 20 years ago, more now than when I first confronted Jesus Christ dramatically and when he confronted me in my despair at the University of Vermont in the dead of winter in January 1972 and introduced to, to me the reality of himself, Jesus Christ shattered my life and rebuilt it ever since. Ever since I'm becoming a little bit more aware, a little bit more tuned in, a little bit more, maybe we could even say intelligent with regard to the extent of what his reality is, what his obedience meant. And may his obedience be ever more intelligible and understandable to us. That's why I'm here. That's why I've been doing this for 45 years. That's why I've been teaching for 45 years here and four or five years before that in Vermont and in Massachusetts and other places. And I've had the privilege of preaching this gospel, or at least parts of it, in other countries. But, and that's why it's going around the world now in various places because it's to make the people of God more intelligent with regard to the extent of Jesus' obedience. And may we become more intelligible as we continue to inquire of God in his holy temple. We will perhaps never, we will perhaps never, and I'm speaking of the ages to come and stack upon ages as pages on a book, we will perhaps never grasp its meaning in its totality. But we know for the ages to come, the knowledge of his obedience on our behalf will be a cause for gratitude, for thanksgiving, for praise, and for worship. And before we sang that song today, well selected, of course, by Vicki, 
Even now we can, and I wrote these down yesterday as I con was considering this, even now we can continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips that confess his name, lips that acknowledge him, as Hebrews 13, 16 says, as God for us and as Emmanuel, God with us. And we may hit this a little bit as we approach Christmas. Emmanuel, just what that means in all of its significance. Or like the Psalms say, I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Psalm 42.5 and 42.11. And I will praise you as long as I live. As your name, at your name, I will lift up my hands, says Psalm 63.4. And yet again, I will praise you forever for what you have done. In the presence of your faithful people, I will put my hope in your name, for it is good. Someone must say, what have you been doing for the past 45 years? Well, I have uh, been proclaiming the faithfulness of God, the righteousness of Christ, and I've put my hope in his name in front of people, because his name is good. And again and again, I will praise God's name with song and exalt him with thanksgiving, Psalm 6930. I will hope continually and will praise you more and more, Psalm 7114. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God while I live, Psalm 10433. And so the fifth element of this little loaded thesis is element five, the power of the risen Lord. The power of the risen Lord. The scripture says that he makes intercession for us in the power of an indestructible life. When he came forth from the grave, it was in the power of an indestructible life because he went into a transformed human body that is incorruptible and immortal. And that's what's going to happen to all of us. This mortal must put on immortality. This corruptible must put on incorruptibility. When Jesus came forth from the grave, he displayed what that means. He brought incorruptibility and immortality to light, and it's brought to light through the gospel. The room I entered several years ago when I realized some of these things in their phenomenal glory is a room my eyes are still getting used to because it's a very very bright room. In his light, we see light, and we walk in the light while we have the light, lest the rolling blackout that's taking over so many people in the coming generations overtake us. And so the power of the risen Lord is the power of an indestructible life, and six, the sixth thing he says in his thesis is the intercession of the eternal priest in Hebrews 7.25. And now we're right back to where we were in Hebrews 9.24, which says that he appears now before the face of God for us, representing us, interceding for us to save us to the uttermost. I call this the appearance or the apocalypse of the three appearings of Jesus Christ. In his first appearing, he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself at the cross, at the peak of the ages, at the culmination of time measured in eons. Right at that juncture, he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 9, 26 
A. 928B, it says he was offered up to bear the sins of many. He was offered up and he received that. He became obedient to that offering of himself because it says he, in a picturesque way, he lifted up all the sins of the human race upon himself, bore the burden of their judgment. And that's in, I can't calculate that. I can't measure that. I can't compare that. Are you kidding? Compare that to someone else's sacrifice, someone else's love, someone else's act and passion and sacrifice. No way. It's going to take eternity, and we will be realizing this more and more throughout eternity. And that's why there will be worship. The worship of Jesus Christ's name instead of the cursing of his name that is so popular today will be the norm in the ages to come. Thank God. But there's one more thing, and that's not what Lonergan said in his thesis. I would say there's a seventh thing that should belong to that thesis because redemption doesn't not only involve a mediation but an end, a goal, an objective. And that I would call point seven, the second appearing of the eternal high priest. In this appearing, that's Hebrews 9.28b. In this appearing, the eternal priest is seen. Who is he seen by? Revelation 1.7 says, every eye. Knees bow to him. The scripture says, every knee bows to him. Willingly and worshipfully, not forcibly. And every tongue acknowledges him, acknowledges what I've told you today about him, freely acknowledges in a worshipful, praise-filled way him in Romans 14, 11. That's every knee of every human that has ever lived above the earth, under the earth, on the earth, you name it. And it involves all creation. And so... If we bring the apocalypse of Jesus Christ given to John called the book of Revelation, it says every eye will see Jesus, that every seer of him will receive and experience the salvation that he wrought for everyone on the cross, that he will grant salvation to all that he already has. His sacrifice offered in his blood, his meritorious obedience is a salvation that was vouchsafed by the power of the risen Lord and his intercession for us by which he saves us completely. And so this coming again of Jesus is what the Hebrews author refers to in his own way as the second appearing of the great archpriest. And I say this because it is his own way of saying it. There's not another place in the Bible where it's said quite like that. He will appear a second time, speaking of the great archpriest. Because the reference to those who are eagerly waiting for him in Hebrews 9.28 alludes to the custom of the Israelites. The great archpriest would come, and he was called a great archpriest even back then. Aaron was even called that. Appears before the people. He's all in his garb. He has the 12 representative stones of Israel on his breastplate. He's there representing all Israel and all the tribes of Israel. He appears. He has the blood of another, a sacrifice, that he's going to go into the earthly holy of holies with. If he does it wrong, if he's not a proper representative, if he's not in tune with God and called by God and he goes in there, he ain't coming out. 
As Nadab and Abihu learned when they went in to offer strange fire, they died in the holy of holies of the old, the old tent. But so the people would wait and say, is the sacrifice that was offered for our sins for another year on Yom Kippur, is it going to be accepted by God? If so, the priest is going to come out again and appear to them and say, it's done. Peace has been made. You're covered for another year, Israel. You're covered for another year. But this now is Jesus Christ, the great archpriest, who appeared in his incarnation on the miracle of Christmas, who lived 30 years on this planet, who died on a cross on a hill called Golgotha, who rose from the dead, who ascended in a cloud to be with the Father, who is on the heavenward side, the Godward side of the universe, who will come again. And when he appears, he will be saying, I have not offered the blood of another. I have not gone in once a year. I have not suffered many times. I suffered once and for all, for all time and for all people. I offered my own blood in the heavenly holy of holies. It's been accepted. Here I am. And he comes with salvation, not for Israel, not for another year, but for all mankind for all the rest of time and eternity. And that's what we're expecting. You can expect a rapture of a few billion people leaving a few other billion to experience the tribulation that already happened in August of AD 70. If you want to, I'm not going to. Because in Acts 3, Peter continued the message of the men in white. And he said, when he comes from heaven, the Father will send him for the restoration of all things, for the universal restoration, the liberation of all creation. That's what I'm expecting. So this coming again by Je of Jesus is something we expect. We eagerly await for it to happen. If he was seen by them again, the high priest was signaling salvation. And Jesus will be seen again. Jesus Christ, our great archpriest, will be seen a second time precisely because he is the divinely authorized representative. Precisely because he is the divinely selected and approved representative, not only of Israel, but of all humanity. Consequently, in his second appearing as great archpriest, he will be seen not only by those who are eagerly anticipating him, but every eye will see him, even we could say those who pierced him, as John wrote, even those who will be surprised to see him. As people will say, as Lou knows very well, they'll say, I can't believe it's not Buddha. Millions will say that. I can't believe it's not Muhammad. I can't believe it's not nobody, because I was always an atheist, and I was always a scientist. They're going to be surprised, and they're going to find out that really the appearance of Jesus Christ will be scientifically feasible in God's science. So in closing, what does it mean when he comes with salvation? It means that he comes to the point where everyone experiences his his salvation. The great Christmas verse that's often quoted in Isaiah 40 in verse 5 is that he will be seen, that all flesh will see 
the salvation of God. The salvation of God, Hebrew for salvation, is Yeshua. His name, Jesus, means salvation. To see God's salvation is to see Jesus, the great archpriest, when he comes. But to see there, harao, means to experience, to have and to experience. All flesh means all human beings, but it also means all flesh of the animal kingdom as well as the human kingdom, all that has breath. And when he appears, all will experience the salvation of God and have the experience of the salvation that the great archpriest has wrought. And so, as we're going to see coming up, in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it says, we just see now obscurely as in a mirror, but then face to face. Just now we know in part, but then we will know completely just as we are also known. And so, Father, I thank you for this opportunity to gaze into the perfect law of liberty. May we be highly motivated in the days to come, highly motivated to place our eyes where you would desire our eyes to be, on the perfect, fulfilled Torah of freedom, as James 1.25 says. May we look into the word of God in such a way that we are seeing the image of the Lord and being transformed from one degree of glory to the next as we see him. Father, we thank you that to know you is to know your son and to see in his face the excellency of the knowledge of your glory and the knowledge of your glory that shines from the face of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, that we have a Savior who is not only our personal Savior, but the Savior of the nations, the Redeemer of the world, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, and the one who's coming and whose appearance will be the experience of salvation for all who have ever lived. So we look forward, Father, to the time when all generations will be contemporary and simultaneously living and breathing and praising you in this world, when all generations that have ever lived will live simultaneously and contemporaneously in one renewed heavens and earth. So we thank you, Father, for this opportunity to gaze into the perfect law of liberty. May all of us who have come here to know you know you even better today because of what we've received today through the Holy Spirit and the Word. Thank you, guys.